there have been cases where um, the agent actually showed the deal to other investors first, but then because the other investors are not fulfilling their promises, they try to go back and forth on the price and try to renegotiate. It shows that they are not that great to work with. And then the agent came to me after that. And then I was able to get the deal, even though I offered less than other investors. The way you handle the relationship, how your personality shows, it counts. This is the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan, where we interview local real estate investors and professionals to go over tips, tricks, and investing strategies to help you learn about the business and to enable you to achieve your financial goals. And now, welcome to the show. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. Today we have Elisa Covington. Elisa is an amazing investor in the Bay Area who went from working a 9-to-5 job to becoming a 7-figure flipper. We had Elisa on the show a long time ago and on this episode I want to go back and catch up with her to see what has changed in her business in the last year and to also give us tips on how new investors can become successful in the business. If you're new to this podcast, subscribe to the show and leave a review. We release episodes every Wednesday and Sunday and release the show notes on our site everythingrei.com podcast. By the way, if you need help financing your next real estate project, check out Conventus Lending. Conventus is the best hard money lender with amazing rates and incredible service. I've used them for years and they've always been incredibly easy to work with. If you need a hard money loan, contact me at sean at everythingrei.com to get $1,000 off of your processing fee. And if you want to know the secrets of how investors in the Bay Area are making huge profits in one of the most expensive markets in the world, download the free Ultimate Bay Area Investing Handbook on our website, everythingrei.com. Enjoy. All right, Lisa, thank you so much for being on the show today. Go ahead and introduce yourself and let us know who you are and tell us what you do. Sure. Thank you for having me. My name is Elisa Covington. I'm a real estate investor and house flipper in the San Francisco Bay Area. So yeah. I've been in the business for not that long. Um, this is my fourth year. So I started in 2017 and I've been doing this um, full time for two years now. And we actually started around the same time because I remember way back when we were volunteering at Jeff's meetup groups, you know, we yeah. were sitting side by side checking people in because that was like our in into the industry. And mm-hmm. it's so crazy to see you just like skyrocket from where we first started. So oh, uh, for those who don't know, I've actually had Lisa on the podcast way back when she was actually one of my first official quote unquote interviews. And I think it's an amazing episode. So if you haven't heard it, go back and check it out. But I want to get a one-year update. So you've had an amazing 2019. Obviously, you're now speaking at meetup groups, the same meetup groups that you used to uh, help you know, volunteer for. Do you want to talk about your one-year progress and what's changed since then? Sure. Yeah. So um, I think the last year I've been doing a little, I've been more selective with my deals. So I only cherry pick the best deals um, with the best profit potential and um, I still maintain the same about the same number of deals that I did Um, so it's I think I did seven deals and um, the deals are a little more complex complicated compared to before so I had one addition done uh, where I added 300 square feet to a house Um, 
So that was new. And also I started a project in San Francisco where um, we were we are trying to convert this house from a care facility with eight bedrooms to a single family home with only five bedrooms. So that's a very big project. We're still working on it. It's been a few months. So that's um, kind of different from my strategy before, which was um, really short projects in and out, uh, cosmetic flips. So now I'm doing uh, more longer projects and projects with even higher profit potential. Yeah, that's good because I think when people are first getting started, they shouldn't get into these crazy deals because there's so many unknown factors. And yeah. it's better to just start with that you know, simple rehab, uh, new flooring, paint, blah, blah, blah. But mm -hmm. now you're talking about getting uh, plans approved by the city. You're mm -hmm. converting bedroom sizes. You're actually changing that garage, right? You change that garage into an extra living space. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, let's talk about your profit potential. So like what makes a deal attractive to you? So uh, I'm looking for at least a 15% profit margin on all the money that's invested in the deal. And when you say all the money that's invested, does that include, let's say the hard money costs as well? Yes. Or like the hard money that someone's lending to you? Uh-huh. Yeah, all the money that's put into the deal. So it includes the purchase price and also the money that's invested in the rehab. Mm, got it. So let's say that all in, all in, you're putting in $1 million to purchase the property, rehab the property, and even finance your hard money costs. So you're looking for $150,000 net on that kind of project. Yes, at okay. least. And let's talk about the complications and like, I guess your fear, because like you've probably never done these before, right? You never did a garage conversion before. You never did eight bedrooms to five bedrooms before. How do you challenge or how do you deal with that challenge of trying something new? So when I go into a new territory, my strategy is I try to be very conservative with my numbers. So I know that the numbers I have, like, um, for example, the exit on the exit side, um, how much I think the house will sell for after all the work is done is very conservative. So that's probably the worst case scenario for my projects. So when the worst case scenario still works, then I know I have enough room, even if the project takes longer, even if it costs more. So that's how it works out. And when you're doing your comparables, are you looking at, let's say, a you know, quarter of a mile radius from your subject property, half a mile radius, and how far back do you look for closed properties? Usually just like really within a couple blocks, like a quarter mile radius. Um, only when I can't find good comps within this um, radius, then I go out a little further, but then I become cons more conservative. So I look at the comps that were sold for lower prices than the, the top dollars. And you look back like six months or a whole year? Um, I look back only like a couple months. So I, uh, many times I check the pending listings. So those are the listings that they haven't closed, but they got in contract. So they reflect the current market condition the best. I call the listing agent to see how much, what the price they got in contract for. Yeah, I was doing that too. Sometimes you get very suspicious when you call them. They're like, who are you? Why are you asking these questions? Oh, uh, <laughs> there's a trick. You can pretend to be a seller. 
in the same area. So you say, oh, I have a house for sale, which is true because you have a project there. So you are looking to sell a house. And you say, oh, I'm looking to sell, but I want to see how much your house was was sold for so I can get a good gauge on how much I, I can expect. Mm, got it. Yeah. And you're not really leading them along because you can actually meet them in person too and have another agent in your pocket to get those pocket listings. Yeah, but if you don't really list with them, they probably are not going to be happy. <laughs> <laughs> that is very true. And let's segue into how you're getting your properties, because I think you're one of the few investors I know that doesn't do direct marketing. You don't really door knock, you don't cold call. You're almost, yeah, you're 100% agent based, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Very impressive. Mm -hmm. It's been three years and it's still working. So here's my problem. Okay. I, you know, I've tried this before too. I was cold calling agents and it wasn't really working out for me. And you know, you always give me advice, right? Offline, like, oh, you should focus on uh, actually connecting with people instead of just calling them and then whatever, two minutes they hang up. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. What would you say to new investors who want to get in the business? How should they be out there talking to agents when they already have great investors like yourself? Um, there are not a lot of um, really good investors that always fulfill their promises to agents. So I, from what I've heard from agents, many investors promise um, double-sided double commissions, but they don't really deliver. Or if um, many times they ask for a kickback. So they say, oh, if you bring a project to me, then you get the buying side commission, and then I relist with you, then you should relist for cheaper. So if you stand out by by showing the agents that you are really trustworthy and you always keep your word and you, you don't ask them for kickback you protect their commission and you if you even pay them more commit to pay them more than the regular commission then you just stand out and then um, you can start building a relationship how would you do that if you don't have any deals to begin with that's how you get deals that's when you don't have deals, you build your network so that it's like planting seeds and then the deals start to, it's, it doesn't happen immediately because most of the time when you call an agent, they don't happen to have deals right away or at that moment. So if you cultivate the relationship over time, they know that you always respond to their emails and you always give them feedback on the deals they bring to you then they start to trust you more and more you go up on their list so if they have a list let's say 10 investors right now and if you are consistent and you keep um, responding in a timely manner you keep giving me giving them reasonable feedback then you climb up the list then you become their top investors that they want to work with yeah, that makes sense. And do you feel like that's what's kind of happening with you? Because I know for the first maybe few months, it's very difficult to get that very first deal. You're out there cold calling a bunch of agents and mm -hmm. maybe you're getting deals that don't really make sense. But after you get some success and you're flipping deals more and more and more, your reputation expands. And then mm -hmm. now you're like the first person to think of when they have an off-market deal. Yeah. Many agents have told me that I'm their first call. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I remember when I was talking to you too, like, Sometimes I would have a deal, I would bring it to you and 
you say, oh, how many people are also looking at this deal? I say, I have no idea because this agent probably just blasted out to their network. But then you were telling me, oh, when agents send me the deal, it's usually I'm the only one that gets to see it. I'm like, what? Yeah, because like, a lot of times it's a listing agent who bring the deals to me. So exactly. they, they already know me, they trust me. So they just bring the deals to me exclusively. Or sometimes it's um, an agent has a deal, but they don't have an, an investor that they work with. So they only tell this to like one or two other agents. And um, it worked like that sometimes too. Yeah, there have been cases where um, the agent actually showed the deal to other investors first. But then because the other investors are not fulfilling their promises, they try to go back and forth on the price and try to renegotiate. So it's just, um, it shows that the agents that they are not that great to work with. And then the agent came to me after that. And then I was able to get the deal, even, even though I offered less than other investors. So your, the way you handle the relationship, the way you, um, how your personality shows, it really, it, it counts. Yeah. Like I was getting a lot of deals that just didn't meet the uh, profit that we we're expecting. And we just have to say no a lot of times. And that can get discouraging, right? If someone's out there sending you deals and you're continuously saying no to them, then it there feels like a, they would say no, right? An agent um, a few months ago sent me a text saying, oh, I brought you um, so many properties this year. And some of them um, turned out to like, he was able to sell to other investors. And he, according to him, they were able to make a profit. And so he was not happy that I turned down all of his deals and he kind of broke up with me. Uh, <laughs> so it happened. Yeah. No, it was just this once, but I know it's true that when you are using very conservative numbers, you could turn down, but I actually went back to look at the deals he brought to me and I didn't see any of them had really good potential. And I don't think anyone actually made money on those deals. I don't know uh, where he got his numbers from, but I think it's a, it's kind of a tricky situation where if you want to make sure you, your business is running at, um, like you want to minimize your risk, then you have to be conservative. And sometimes it's not to the agent's best interest if you turn down all of their deals because your numbers are so conservative. Right. But that's how you have to do it because you are the one who's responsible for your business. That's true. And I remember last time we spoke, you said that uh, you don't really have like one particular agent giving you a majority of your deal flow. It's kind of like sparse. Like, you have all these agents kind of in your network and for the most part, an agent will give you one or two deals at most. Is that still the case or do you now have someone that's actually sending you a lot of your volume? I've had quite a few repeat, um, repeat deals with the same agent. Um, so I've had, so especially last year, I've had a, a two or three deals from the same agent, but I think three is probably the most I've had so far. Three deals is still pretty amazing, considering that each project you can make a significant it's amount not the of same year. <laughs> so some oh, of okay. them, like usually two a year, that's the, the max. And some of them brought me a deal before and then um, 
like in two years span, they brought me three deals total. Yeah. I mean, you're not cold calling anymore, right? So how are you increasing no. that network of, of agents? I haven't because I haven't had the need to. Um, my pipeline is really full. I currently have four projects going on and it's like I'm at capacity pretty right. much. Yeah. And at the time, you only had one team that you were working with as well for uh, constructing projects. Is that still the case? Yeah, it is because um, my contractor actually has a very big crew that um, they can do three, four projects at a time. Perfect. And um, two of my projects were waiting on permits. So <laughs> we, we can't do any work for, for some time. Yeah. And you know, when it comes down to also doing those more tricky projects like conversions or whatever, uh, I guess at the end of the day, you have to just rely on the contractor skill, right? You have to trust that they've done it before and they know what they're doing. We always get permits for our projects. So yeah. the inspector will check if everything's done correctly. So that's um, another way to make sure the, the work is done right. Yeah. But I mean, still, like, you, you still want to have somebody that knows how to, how to do it, right? Of course. Of course. Yeah. 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 So in the past year, have you had any complications that you never saw before or something that kind of caught you off guard? Um, there was a deal that uh, where I broke even on. So I didn't, after months of work, um, I just didn't make any money on it. So that was a deal that I bought in the summer of 2018, actually. So I gave the seller a three months of rent back when the market was declining constantly for three months. And then when I took over the house, the margin was pretty much gone. So um, also the, the neighbor's house was really in, in very, very bad shape. So we had to remodel the neighbor's house for free, um, just the outside. And then um, we took the house off of the market to remodel the neighbor's house and then to redo the kitchen. So it took really long. I think it took like eight months, six or eight months to actually um, be able to sell the house eventually. And then it broke even. So that was um, the worst deal I had last year. It's not too bad, but I'm sure those eight or six months was a lot of stress, right? Because you yeah, thought you had something good. and then stressful yeah. dealing with the neighbor and uh, they're not the easiest to deal with. Even though we remodeled their house for free, they were making demands. Yeah. And also the house, I just couldn't understand why we listed the house for $100,000 below market price the first time and it wasn't selling for a month. Yeah. I mean, that was probably because of the uh, market slowdown of like late 2018, early 2019, right? Yeah. The market slowed down also because the neighbor's house was scaring away buyers. And then there's a school right across the street from the house. So like a few things that I know that I made mistakes on when I was buying the house, I didn't really, um, I didn't see these factors. Yeah. So going forward, what would you do differently? It's just be more careful with the surroundings, with the surroundings and with how the, where the market is. So if I knew the market was, could go down by 15% in three months, then I would, I would not have given the seller a three months rent back. So now I'm not offering that much rent back. 
Is it because you think that it's a scary time right now? You don't see this uh, crazy appreciation yeah. like we did. It's kind uh-huh. of like yeah, uh-huh. market is not is not very stable. Yeah, and also you probably not buy a house next to a really ugly house or right across from the school. <laughs> yeah, I definitely would pay attention to that next time. Yeah, I mean I have the same situation with my Sunnyvale house. I keep saying it, but like the no parking situation or the no garage situation really is, I think, what what screwed our deal. And mm-hmm. I personally didn't understand that until it happened to us. So, mm-hmm. I mean, these are the things that you learned that aren't really in books. You aren't really talked about on other podcasts and shows. So, yeah. yeah. You have to learn as you go. Yeah, learn <laughs> as you go. Now let's talk about some of your big wins of last year. Do you want to talk about one of your favorite projects, uh, something that you had a great time doing and something that you came out with a huge win on the back end? Sure. Um, so... One deal that I really like was the the deal that we walked through together in San Bruno. That was my first garage conversion deal. And um, we, it took a little longer. It took uh, five and a half months total to complete it because of the permit process. But because I underwrite the, I underwrote the house really conservatively, so um, the profit margin was really good. It was over $300,000 margin. Yeah. So it was a really fun project where I also got to play with the colors, um, exterior paint colors. Um, I tried the black and white combo, the, the modern farmhouse combo. So I think the house came out really good and the buyer really loved it. Um, it was it was pretty fun. That was also my first project in the in the peninsula. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a more of a higher price point as well. You didn't actually have to pay that much for it for the peninsula. House. I paid a million dollar for it. Yeah. yeah, not too bad, especially considering well, that there are other projects that are like one point two from uh-huh, acquisition. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think the in the peninsula the market seems to be a little better than the South Bay. It's a little more stable and um, there's really good demand for houses there. Yeah. And for everyone listening that wants to see it, you can check it out on our YouTube channel. Um, Yeah. It's an amazing house and the converted garage just looks great. I mean, you said at the time there was a huge garage, right? And you don't really need that much space for parking. So why not add a wall and have it be really cool? Yeah, that actually turned, it turns out to be one of my favorite types of remodel because um, you get to add a lot of value to the house, but the risk is relatively low because the garage structure is already there. So there's not a lot of work and cost that needs to be added to make it happen. Yeah. Do you want to talk about the whole permitting process to do that converted garage? Sure. So we had to hire an architect to draw up the plans for the added addition. And also he prop, um, he had to submit the plans for the whole house in order for the, um, for the city to review it. And then um, during the process, the city gives comments on the plans. And also um, we actually had the city came back to us saying there was um, this uh, encroachment to the city. Like, so there was um, encroachment in the front of the house where uh, there's a small, very small retaining wall 
the city is saying that retaining wall is built on city property. So they wanted us to get a permit for that before we could um, get approved on the garage conversion. So it was totally unrelated to the garage conversion, but it just came up. Got so it. when the city is reviewing your plans, they could really look at all sorts of things, the whole house and how your house is built. Um, yeah, so it's, it, it can really get complicated. So That's be careful when applying. Yeah, be careful when applying for a permit because they can find all these crazy things that you didn't even know about before. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And yeah. do you want to talk about cost as well as timeline for this whole project? So um, the project took um, four months to complete from, from the time I closed on it to the time we finished the remodel and garage conversion. And it cost $180,000. So the garage conversion part costs only uh, $40,000. So it's very cost effective, adding 300 square feet. And um, so that's probably at least over $100,000 in value. Yeah. And of that $40,000, how much of that goes to an architect? And how much of that goes to like city for the fees and whatnot? So the architect... Uh, so it's a little over 40000 The architect charged um, a few thousand dollars, and then the city permit costs um, a few thousand dollars too. And how long did the whole process take from the architect to like draw the plans, talk to the city, and then get it approved? It took probably three months. Wow. Yeah. There was a lot of back and forth. So um, what I did was I put a permit to remodel the kitchen and bathroom first so we could start work while waiting on the permit yeah. for the addition. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes sense because you can do all that stuff now and then you can do the garage at the very end anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very cool. So what else are you doing besides flipping homes? Uh, I like social media, as you know. So I have um, an Instagram account where I try to um, – educate more people to get started with real estate investing and also to um, inspire and motivate others like to um, to get into entrepreneurship. I think it's really powerful to be able to work for yourself and not have to um, basically take charge of your life. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. And it's, it changed my life and I want it to happen to more people. That's yeah. why, that's also why I just created my YouTube channel and uh, I'm still in the process of, of um, uploading it and um, setting up the first episode. But that's what I want to do um, this year as well to, um, I think YouTube is a great platform where, um, you can use for educational purpose to really, um, show other people how to get into the door because so many people have asked me the questions like, how do I get started? Where do I learn about real estate investing, especially for free? There are a lot of free resources. So I I think that's really, um, it can be helpful for new people to get started in real estate investing and take control of your life. 
Yeah, I guarantee that when you post YouTube videos, you're going to get like a million subscribers. ASAP, <laughs> very fast. I believe in you. No, I, I'm not that ambitious. Doesn't I, matter. I, it's because you're yeah, helping so many people. Small. Yeah. <laughs> and I, if I can help a few people, then I'm happy. Good. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've been doing YouTube for about six months now. And for really? me, it's not that fast growing, but it's also because I'm kind of dealing with my own stuff. And, uh, I feel like if, you know, in your position, you're actually doing it, right? You're actually doing really well in the business and you have a lot to actually teach. So you're going to do very, very well for sure. Guaranteed. Thank, you. Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah. So besides the social media stuff, I know you're also dabbling into Airbnbs as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you want to talk about your Airbnb deal that you had last year? Sure. Yeah. It was a really good deal. I bought it as a flip in downtown San Jose and I picked it up for $625,000 a three bedroom, two bath house, uh, 1400 square feet. And as I was remodeling it, I realized that it could be a very good rental property that can generate a lot of cash flow. So I decided to, to try Airbnb. And then um, a friend of mine who's an Airbnb expert helped me set it up. And we've been so the rent income on that is on average seven over seven thousand dollars a month wow and we so before this coronavirus happened <laughs> our um occupancy is like 98 percent even even in the winter time yeah so it's really good my um, property manager is doing a great job um and so, just as a shout out, your property manager is Ethan, right? Ethan Cook? Ethan Cook, yeah. yeah. He's really good with managing tenants, um, managing, like, um, building the reputation for a new Airbnb. He asks the guests to review our property every time after they um, complete their stay. Yeah. That's why we, we have very consistent and very good reviews on Airbnb to help new um new tenants to to see our property and for a shout out for ethan cook if you guys want to hear more about airbnb you can check him out on episode 140 on our podcast and you were saying that you were making seven thousand dollars gross what do you think that property would have rented at if you just did a normal like lease to someone who's gonna live there for a year i checked on Chrysler before i did airbnb i think it would yield probably um, 4,500 to 5,000. Okay, so yeah, $2,000 a month is pretty good. It's a mm -hmm. decent spread. Yeah. Yeah, and are you doing anything else besides your Airbnb and flipping homes? We're going to build an ADU on, my, on the lot to make the Airbnb like more units with the Airbnb. Yeah, okay. we're going to make two more units. So that's in San Jose as well, right? Mm -hmm. The same on the on the lot. We have a very big lot, over six thousand square feet. So we can add. I think according to this new rule, you can add a two bedroom. Yeah, in the backyard, right? Yeah. Very cool. And That's you're cool. gonna do a stick build, or are you gonna have like a prefab come in and crane it over your house? So I consider doing the mobile home, but then um, I realized the cost is actually almost the same as a stick build home because there's the cost of the home and which is a lot cheaper but then if you add the installation cost installation cost is a lot 
So when you add the two together, it actually um, costs pretty much the same as a stick built home. So we decided to just go with the stick built. Yeah. And how much does it cost to build an ADU? Uh, the installation cost is like seventy to a hundred thousand dollars. If you don't do any upgrades, it's like seventy, eighty thousand dollars. But if you do upgrades, if you want to make it nicer, like more updated, then it's gonna be a hundred thousand dollars. So all in all, it's like two hundred thousand dollars. Wow, uh, and that's worth it though, right? Because on Airbnb, you can rent it out for another I don't know how much five thousand a month. Um, for each bedroom. So if you do separate entrance to, to each bedroom, then you can probably get, um, close to $6,000 a month. You charge a hundred dollars a month. So, so basically yeah. you're going to make an ADU with two bedrooms in it, but then you're going to have like their own separate entrances separate and, then... and then like separate kitchen. Okay. Shared bathroom or two different bathrooms? Two, two bathrooms. Too. Okay. Wow. They just don't have to deal with each other unless they share the, when they share the laundry. Got it. Oh, that's really cool. So it's definitely worth it for $200,000. And Mm -hmm. is there financing for that or did you just plan on paying it with cash? I was going to refinance cash out refinance on my, um, air on my rental and then use that cash out to fund the construction on the ADU. Got it. But that's really smart. I, I believe you can also just get a construction loan too. And what do you think about this current market? How you know the virus is kind of messing up things and everything's kind of scary. Do you have any uh, differences in your strategy? <laughs> it's really um so I I think the good thing is with real estate it we all know that it doesn't react as fast as the stock market. It, it can never be that volatile. Um, you don't see price dropping 10% in a day. So that's the good thing. And also I read some studies showing that um, during the previous epidemics, um, the prices were not really affected a lot by the situation. So it was more, um, the number of sales dropped, but the prices were holding up. Mm-hmm. And also, um, I hear from some of my agent friends. Um, they said the last two weeks, open houses. They still there are still a lot of people going to open houses, and buyers are still making offers. They're not backing up yet, so that's a good news too. And um, some of them even tell me that since we're not allowed to do much, there, there's not a lot of activity allowed in this period. So after, once this shelter in place is lifted, most likely uh, a lot of buyers are going to be really um, serious in looking for homes because they haven't been able to do it for <laughs> quite some time. Yeah, I feel the same way. It's like everyone's kind of trapped in their homes and they're feeling very itchy and they want to go out. They want to spend their money, but they're not allowed to. So mm-hmm. once this uh, quarantine is lifted, everyone's going to go crazy. and starts Yeah, when, the, um, when a buyer is looking for a home to buy, they have to buy a home. It's not like they can just um, wait for a few months or even a couple of years because they have this 
need they have they have the demand mm -hmm. and i think like right now right now people can probably actually get a discount if you're looking for uh like new builds i remember back in 2002 2003 when sars happened my uncle was telling these uh new construction guys like hey uh, I'm looking to buy a house, but if you want me to risk my life to go over to check out the building, you have to give me a good discount. <laughs> and you hey, got it. Open houses are not allowed anymore. They're not. They're not. Yeah. And um, I think MLS announced that they are freezing the days, days on market. So if your house is on the market right now, like from now until April 7th, it's going to show the same days on market. That makes sense because it's kind of hard to sell your property. Although they are doing a lot of crazy things right now, like there's gap insurance. I've never heard that term before. They have e-recordings now because the Santa Clara uh, yeah. County Clerk's Office is closed or something. I'm like, uh -huh. what? There's all yeah, these cool things. doing e-recording. Yeah, I just recorded a property like two days ago. Really? Wow, congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Damn, you're still out there buying houses? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Wow, that's amazing. So, you know, tips for new investors. What do you think that most of us are doing wrong? For new investors who want to get in the game but couldn't? I mean, I mean, besides myself, I mean, I personally haven't had a lot of good success in the past two years, but there are some guys who've been out in our community. They show up all the time, but it's been like three years and they still haven't done the deal. What do you think they're doing wrong? I think consistency is a big thing. Like you have to make consistent effort so when you are I don't know you, you say they show up at, at meetings but do they constantly look for deals are they are they using the right strategies to look for deals are they um, really like every day they are out there looking for deals are they sending out enough mailers are they talking to enough agents it's a numbers game so you have to really do enough uh, activity to see the results if you only do like call a couple agents like I think this is one thing that new investors don't know like when I was starting out I called like 20 agents and I was like I should be getting deals but that's not how it works 20 agents it depends on who are these agents that you talk to whether they have a lot of um, sales going on and whether these agents like where they are like um, whether they have enough sales and whether they are really looking to work with you or they have other investors that they are looking they're working with so if you just call 20 agents you probably won't won't have a deal very soon but if you really um, call lots of agents like hundreds of agents then you're about to get a deal sooner or later it's yeah. just it takes a lot of effort it's not like you call a couple times and then you go to a couple meetings and then you send out 500 mailers it, it doesn't happen when the effort is not enough and i remember when we were talking you were saying that you should try to meet them in person if possible, mm -hmm. because otherwise they're not going to remember you. You're just a voice on the phone. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, what do you do to like pique their interest? You know, you cold call them, they have no idea who you are. And in the first like 10 seconds, you have to get them to say, okay, like, yeah, let's meet for coffee or something like that. You just tell them that you're looking to buy houses, that you have the funds to buy houses with them. Agents usually, they love that. If there's a buyer saying they want to buy multiple houses with them, then that's 
a gold buyer. So they would want to work with you. And then when I tell them that I want to meet with them in person, a lot of them feel impressed because they are never asked to meet in person by investors. They get lots of emails, lots of phone calls, but nobody ever asked them to meet in person. But agent business is very traditional. They like face-to-face. -face. When they meet with sellers, they always meet face-to-face -face so that they know who you are, they know um, what kind of personality you are, and then they decide whether you can, they can trust you or not. Yeah. So they really, they really love that. Yeah, that's like a good way to stand out as well. Mm -hmm. And by the way, when you say that you have, you know, quote unquote funds to purchase, uh, most people out there don't actually purchase with cash and they definitely use some kind of loan, either traditional loan or a hard money loan. If you're pre-approved by a hard money lender, that's your proof of funds. There you go. You just say, I have 2 million in line of credit somewhere. You don't have to say, say okay. the exact number, but you say, I have, I have a lot of money to purchase houses with. Nice. Yeah. yeah. And you know, now that you have done multiple deals, and I know that you probably don't even need a hard money loan if you uh, don't want to. Uh, do you still get loans for your properties and your projects? And mm -hmm. so how much leverage are you usually taking per deal? That's the beauty of real estate. You can leverage so much money. You, you only put 20% or 10% down and then you can leverage a lot more than what you have. So you can do multiple deals at a time. So um, I, will, I would always leverage whenever I can. So right now I'm doing like 10, anywhere between 10 to 25% down. And then do you also fund the construction loans as well, or do you just pay it out of pocket? I usually don't get construction loan, but depending on how many deals I have going on, I, I would consider using it. And have you started taking on investors who just put their money down kind of like a second position or do you just turn I have yourself? done that before. I'm not doing that right now, but, um, in 2018, I found three deals um, by private money lenders. So I, I use a hard money lender, hard money to cover 90% of the purchase price. And then the other 10% of the purchase price is covered by a private money lender. I only put up the construction cost myself. Gotcha. And is this virus affecting your business at all? Like, is it slowing down uh, acquisitions or... Uh, acquisition no i have um i'm i just closed on one deal two days ago and i'm closing on another one in next week wow crazy <laughs> congrats <laughs> but it's slowing down the city process so um as i mentioned the two projects that are waiting for permits we probably have to wait for longer because of this because the city's closed and um, currently the construction is still going on because in the guidelines, it says construction is um, deemed essential, essential business. So we're still doing construction, but I don't know if we're going to get further notice that we cannot do it anymore. So mm -hmm. we'll have to wait and see. And are you gonna change your strategy at all because of this virus and instability in the market? We need to be more cautious. Um, buying deals it it's a very tricky time with the changes in the stock market um the real estate market even though it's not going to be um going to react that quickly but it's still 
um, I think it's going to be impacted as well. Cool. All right, Lisa, thank you so much for your time. Do you have any other last tips that you have to give to our listeners before we end our show today? I think in this time, um, it's a tricky time for new investors to get started. Um, it's better to not do a deal than to get in a bad deal. Oh, I know that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So be very careful. Like if you haven't done a deal before, you may want to bring in an, another experienced investor to look at the deals so that you make sure that you are not making a mistake. Yeah. And for all those listening, when I have a deal, I sent to Lisa. So Lisa, how can people get in contact with you? Uh, they can check out my website, transformrealestate.com or my Instagram page. It's also Transform Real Estate. And my new YouTube channel is called Transform Real Estate as well. Um, I'm going to share a lot of tips and strategies on new investors to get started in house flipping and real estate investing in general. And my goal is to empower more people to really get into the business and take control of their lives. Perfect. Let me know when your channel is up. I'll be your first subscription. Oh, thank you. Thank you yeah. so much. <laughs> All right, Lisa, thank you so much for your time. It was a pleasure having you on the show again. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Xiao. Cool. Take care. Here are some key takeaways from this episode. If you want to be successful in the business, you need to be very, very consistent in all of your efforts, whether that's cold calling, talking to agents, sending out direct mail pieces, or door knocking. Anything you do needs to be consistent. And if you're trying to get your deals through agents, try to meet up with them in person so that you can actually meet them face to face and have them remember who you are. You want to build that strong connection. And if you want to get deals from them, you have to be true to your word. Just be a better person. Do what you say you're going to do. Don't renegotiate on a deal in the last minute just to save some more money. Don't try to cut their commissions just because you're releasing it with them. Make the whole process very easy and simple for them and they will continue giving you deals. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can find the show notes and other episodes on our site, everythingrei.com slash podcast. If you live in the Bay Area, join our meetup group, where we meet up twice a month in San Jose at meetup.com slash everythingrei. And if you thought this was a great episode, let me know what your key takeaway was and share it with a friend who's interested in real estate investing. Thanks and have a great day. This was another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. If you enjoyed the show, leave us a five-star rating. It will only take a second and it'll help a lot. You can contact me at sean at everythingrei.com. That's S-E-A-N at everythingrei.com. Thanks and have a great day.